0: right. Thank you, Alice. We are thankful with you and praise God for you. and uh, that's part of body life is uh, to walk with one another through great times of difficulty and adversity as well as great times of joy and blessing that we see. And so thank you, Alice, for sharing that with us this morning. Um, I just wanted to mention that uh, I'm kind of like Pavlov's dog when Mike gives me the nod from up here that that song's about done, I jump up. You know, I'm just, I hear the bell and I'm ready to go. I forgot I, you know, I had a video to show yet. So that's what I was doing. Uh, So anyway, well, this morning uh, we are going to look at a passage in the Gospel of John. Russ read the passage, very familiar passage, on the feeding of the 5,000 at the Sea of Galilee over on the, probably the, the northernmost point of the Sea of Galilee, if you have Bible maps in your Bible. If you don't, I'd encourage you to buy a Bible that has maps so you can uh, see g- uh, the geography of the Holy Land. Uh, but he was over there, and that's where they fed the, he fed the 5,000 miraculously as we come to the Gospel of John. Uh, in my graduate studies at the Dallas Theological Seminary, one reason I went there was because they teach through all 66 books of the Bible. You spend time... In every book of the Bible uh, studying it and uh, doing what is called exegesis seeing what the original intent of the author is and uh, when we did the minor prophets I got to the book of Amos and I must admit that even though I'd been a Christian for some years I had never really studied the book of Amos in fact the only Amos I knew was a cookie maker back east somewhere and uh, uh, but in the book of Amos, there's one passage that haunted me at the time, and when I do remember it and read it, like I have this week, it is uh, very striking and very stra- staggering in the sense that it grips me when I remember it. Uh, Amos, of course, was a prophet uh, of Israel, and he lived in a time uh, when the northern, when the Israel was divided, the northern ten tribes uh, were called Israel, and the southern two tribes. Uh, we're called uh, Judah. And I know that gets confusing sometimes when we read the Old Testament. But Amos was sent by God to be a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Israel. And he's warning them about uh, the upcoming captivity uh, that the Assyrians in 722 BC would wreck upon them. And of course, the Assyrians were not nice people. And they carried away the Israelites from the northern ten kingdoms into captivity, never to be regathered again. In fact, they carried them away Uh, with hooks through their jaws on chains. I mean, the Assyrians were not nice neighbors to have. Uh, But Amos was warning the nation Israel, and they ignored him because they were very, uh, very uh, strong militarily. Uh, Egypt and the rest of the world seemed pretty weak. Uh, They were strong militarily. They were very blessed with abundance materially, and so they ignored Amos. And towards the end of The book of Amos, uh, he casts the situation in the context of a famine. And, of course, people in those days and ages were very familiar with what it meant to have a famine. When there was a famine, you had no crops, and when you had no crops, you had no food. And so they were very well aware of that. So he uses that as a metaphor to tell them these following words. Amos writes, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. The near fulfillment, of course, is when Assyria came in and ravaged the northern ten tribes and carried them into captivity, those they didn't kill. And that's the near fulfillment, that the word of God dried up in Israel, but the long fulfillment, of course, is looking forward to the time of what we call the Great Tribulation, when there will be a famine in all of the world of the Word of God. And uh, but I think there is a current application, if you will, if I can stretch the application a bit to our current time. When we look at our current culture, our current society, at North America as well as many other parts in the world, there seems to be a famine. People are searching from the Lord, but they ignore his word. They are failing to find the word of God. It seems like a very horrible prophecy, but in some ways it is even more terrible to have the Lord Jesus Christ available as he is today and yet have people refuse to believe in him. People have a great hunger. Uh, There's that God-shaped vacuum in the soul of every person that uh, they hunger for truth and righteousness, peace, spiritual satisfaction and other things and we know that Jesus is the answer to this hunger and yet the tragedy is is that people refuse to believe in him and it's not unlike the day and age in which the Lord Jesus Christ in which the passage that Russ read for us was ministering in the nation of Israel at this time and uh, the passage we are looking at today occurs about a year before his death, burial, and resurrection. If you take your copy of God's word, turn to John chapter six. Uh, There are a lot of verses listed on your bulletin outline, and I promise that we won't cover every one of them, but uh, there is a context here, and in the feeding of the 5,000 with the fish and the bread, uh, we have a context for the teaching of Jesus here. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you that you continue to send forth your word, that you scatter it abroad, you scatter it in our midst, and we have the great freedom and privilege of meeting here today in this country in a very public place. We don't have to fear for persecution. We thank you that we can own copies of your word in our own heart language. We thank you for the great privilege of meeting together as a church family. We thank you for the guests that are with us here today, and we pray, Lord, that each one of us would be transformed and changed because of this encounter with you, with your word, and with one another. We thank you for this passage today. I pray for clarity of speech and that we would all have understanding hearts and that you would teach us through the power of your spirit today. And we thank you for blessing us with this opportunity. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. Just to set a broader context, of course, the four Gospels, each one of the Gospels has an emphasis in how they present the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew has an emphasis on the kingship or the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Mark focuses in, and his theme is Jesus the servant. He is the servant who came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke, of course, as a physician, he presents Jesus. His emphasis is on the humanity of Jesus Christ. And, of course, John focuses on the divinity or the fact that Jesus is the God-Man, and so John is doing that. And if you want a really quick outline of the Gospel of John, you can break it down into two major sections. First of all, the Book of Signs, chapters two through twelve, and then the Book of Glory, chapters thirteen through twenty-one. In fact, if you look at uh, chapter thirteen, verse one, it says, "Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world." to the Father, having loved us, who, uh, his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so from that point on is this movement towards Jerusalem, towards crucifixion. But the first book, the book of signs in chapter 2 through 12, a sign is another terminology for a miracle, a supernatural event. And in that passage, in those chapters, we see seven different miracles. In the Gospels, there's recorded, I think, depending how you count, 32 to 35 different specific miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ worked while he was on earth. Uh, the Book of Signs, these seven miracles, you remember the wedding at Cana, ta- changing water into wine in chapter 2, healing the nobleman's son in chapter 4, healing uh, the man born lame, uh, lame from birth uh, in chapter 5. In chapter 4, or I mean in chapter 6, here what we're going to look at today is the 5,000 are fed miraculously, In this same chapter, he walks on water in the Sea of Galilee. In chapter 9, he heals the man born blind, and the seventh one is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Now, we need to remind you and also to emphasize the fact that as you go through the Gospels and read about the miracles, the signs, the supernatural events, the miracle working ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he didn't just do miracles for miracle's sake. He didn't heal everybody in the world in that day. He didn't raise up all the dead in that day. There was a specific purpose for these miracles and for these signs that he worked, and that was to validate what he was saying. So often it's called the works and the words of Jesus Christ. So as you trace and read about a miracle, like the feeding of the 5,000, for instance, if you go before that, you're going to see a discourse, especially if you have a red-letter Bible that will help you see Jesus teaching in lengthy sections, But in that discourse before the feeding of the 5,000, there is the witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah who has come. And, of course, in his day and age, the people were looking for a military Messiah, for one that would rescue them from the tyranny of Rome, plus provide for all their needs. And then after that, after the walking, uh, that was a very public miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, where he multiplied the bread and the fish. And then there was the walking on water, which was just uh, uh, relegated to his disciples who were in the boat, who saw this happen. Uh, But yet it is confirming who he says he is. It's an authentication that this is the Messiah. Yes, it is. And so he comes. And of course, the Jews or the Galileans, that's the part of the world he's in. When he goes back, uh, they, they board the ship at night and Jesus shows up walking on water and they end up Uh, back over in Capernaum, which is to the west, probably 8 to 10 miles across the Sea of Galilee from where he was at near uh, Tiberias. And he came back, and uh, there the Jews followed him, the Galileans followed him because he had provided them with free food. Now, free food is always a great thing, you know, especially if it's very good. And I'm sure this was very good because it was from God's hand alone. Uh, We had friends in Dallas, neighbors actually, who anytime there was a free buffet someplace, they would show up because they were really liked free food, don't we all? And the Galileans were really emphasizing that, and they came back, and if you look down at uh, verse uh, 25, they found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Because uh, they, they noticed he didn't get in the boat with the other disciples when they left, and yet here he was, and they wondered, how did he do this? It should have been a hint right there that there's something supernatural going on. And Jesus said to them in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you. By the way, that is a a marker, a structure marker in the Gospel of John. It occurs some 25 times. Some of your translations may have amen, amen, or I say to you. Uh, This translation says truly, truly, I say to you. And so that's one of those markers. In fact, in this passage in chapter 6, I think it occurs 1, 2, 3, 4 At least four different times, he repeats that, and it's an emphasis. It's very emphatic that you need to listen to what I'm going to say. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, verse 26, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal." And uh, he recognizes why they're following him. These disciples are looking for more free bread, more free bread. That's what they're looking for. In fact, uh, one commentary I had, J. Dwight Pentecost, writes that, "...it was not the promise of spiritual blessings for which the multitude hungered. Rather, they wanted the physical and material blessings the Messiah could confer upon them." They desired to eat his bread without laboring for it. They considered the material blessings more beneficial to them than the spiritual blessings. He had come to confer upon them. Their desire for more bread revealed that they considered the satisfaction of the flesh the highest goal in life. Doesn't that sound just like us, if I may be blunt? We live in a very materialistic society and it's easy to get caught up in the stuff. And uh, they definitely were caught up on the stuff, and they were in danger of missing the point of the illustration of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which he is going to go on to explain to them. In fact, I was thinking about, uh, I wish I would have taken photos of the transition uh, of my parents from uh, a 3,000-square-foot home, uh, and then when my dad passed away, we sold the house, cleared it out, and uh, they were very good, by the way, at not keeping... They weren't hoarders, but they did have a lot of stuff because uh, I had to carry it all out. Uh, but uh, but then to transition my mother to assisted living, which was a little 600-square-foot uh, uh, apartment and reduced her stuff. And then when she passed away, we cleared that apartment out. And I, the, the image that sticks in my mind is... Uh, out at the cemetery, Conrad Cemetery in Kalispell, the snow was all over the place, and and there's her casket, and that's all that's left, you know. I mean, it just goes away. I've come to the conclusion that we spend the first half of our lives accumulating stuff, and the last half getting rid of it, or somebody else will have to get rid of it. But these, these Galileans, as well as People in this day and age, it's all about the accumulation. It's about getting something satisfactory. And sometimes we treat God that way. It's God, and and I have to listen to my own prayers. What am I asking for? What kind of blessings do I want? And what is my motive behind those things? But in this passage, he gives us some teaching about what true life is really about, And what the source of true life is about. And the first thing we see, there's going to be five things we see in these passages, is that life is eternal in nature. Life is eternal in nature. And eternality, of course, we can't wrap our head around that because we are finite creatures. We are only used to finite things with beginnings and ends. And yet the word of God talks about the eternal nature of God. He has no beginning. He has no end. The Alpha and the Omega is Jesus Christ. And yet we are promised eternal life. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, the bread, in other words, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So this life that Jesus Christ is offering us is eternal in nature. There are two kinds of life. You need to take note of this. There are two kinds of life. There is created life. That's what we have now. Every person is a created being. When they're born, they have created life. In the life of every creature has been given by the creator at creation. Okay, when it talks in Genesis about God breathed into Adam, he gave him his spirit in the sense that he gave him life. The life can be terminated because of sin. We know that uh, because of sin came into the world, that death was one of the punishments. It does end in death. When Christ offers people life, he's not offering created life, but he's offering us uncreated life. This is a fundamental distinction when you think about your life, because uncreated life belongs to God alone. He alone is the eternal one. He is the one alone who has no beginning and no end. He forever was, he forever will be. And he has chosen in his ultimate perfect plan to offer this uncreated life to his creatures when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He shares his life with those who put their trust in him. Believers in Jesus Christ possess, present tense, eternal life. This uncreated life belongs to God alone. And it continually staggers me uh, because I I convey it in my limited, finite being. Uh, I love my relatives, and they come, and the old adage is true. After three days, you know, fish and relatives start to stink. And uh, I hope my relatives aren't listening to this. But, you know, there's an aspect where, okay, it's time for you to go home, or it's when I visit somebody, it's time for me to go home. And yet God in his infinite wisdom has provided us and given to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, uncreated life, we will will be with him forever and ever. Yes, we had a beginning. More technically, we have everlasting life as believers in Jesus Christ, whereas God shares his eternal life with us. And so we have this future and this hope because of what Christ has done. And belief is the sole condition of having Eternal life. Look again at verse, look down at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, there's that emphasis again. He who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I so appreciate uh, Brian's testimony about his journey and about uh, the struggle with assurance and yet recognizing that it is belief for over 150 times in the New Testament The qualification for eternal life is simply belief or a synonym of that word. It's not believe and do good works. It's not believe and be baptized. It's not repent and believe. It's simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And it's more than just an intellectual belief in a set of facts. We can all agree, especially the historians among us, that George Washington lived. Okay, That is a set of facts. I believe it but I don't place my trust in George for anything. Okay, there's a difference there. I know the intellectual facts, but I am not believing in him to provide me with anything today. Same goes for an aircraft. I can believe that an aircraft, a 787 that we see fly over us almost every day, will take off and fly. I've seen it. But until I, as an act of faith, go up that... Uh, the the stairs, and get on that aircraft, strap myself in, and allow it to take off, do I truly believe that I'm fully persuaded that that thing can fly? Likewise, there are those who are religious, and they believe in the facts of Jesus Christ. They believe he existed, but they have not entrusted themselves for eternity in him. Some are trusting in their good works or their heritage to give them eternal life, You know, in James chapter 2, verse 19, it says that even the demons believe and they shudder. They know the facts better than we do, and they shudder because they know Jesus Christ will be victorious, and yet they continue, but they're not believing for eternal life. They are not saved. It is the fact of being fully persuaded that what Jesus says is true, just like in verse 27 where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, present tense. I cannot emphasize this enough. Not only is this bread eternal in nature, secondly, life is that is in is heavenly in origin. It's heavenly in origin. Uh, look at verse thirty two through thirty three He has this ongoing discussion with them. Uh, they are uh, arguing basically that uh, Moses basically gave them manna from heaven, and Jesus is correcting their thinking on that. Verse 32, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Of course, their argument, they're great at their history. Uh, these, These Galilean Jewish people were great at their history. They recognized back in the Exodus when Moses was leading the people out of captivity in Egypt, what happened in Sinai. God provided manna. Moses brought out manna from heaven, and he provided bread six days a week for 40 years. And they're saying, hey, you just did this little thing the other day, uh, you know, just 5,000 of us just one time. We want you to see you uh, do like Moses did. And he is responding to that and telling them that it is not Moses who gave you the manna out of heaven, but it is more important than physical nourishment. It is spiritual nourishment that is, is that what you need. So the origin of the bread is from the Father. Origins are important to us. We want to know where we came from. Mankind has a need to know about the beginnings. And Jesus is taking them back to the true origin of the physical bread in the Exodus, but the spiritual bread that he is right there. He said, I am the bread of life in verse 35. The identity of the bread in verse 33 says, I am the one. The Father has sent me. The bread of life is eternal in nature. It's heavenly in origin. And thirdly, it is life that satisfies our deepest longing. It's a life that satisfies our deepest longing. When we look at the world today, and perhaps you're caught up in some of these things, uh, we see that people are seeking satisfaction in many different ways of life. I think back to when I was a brand-new Christian. I was age 28. I'd been working, uh, and we were accumulating stuff, and I thought that's what life was about. You get a house. You get a nice car. You get all this stuff. Keep accumulating. But I soon found out it was so empty, and I needed an answer about that. But people seek power, Mark eight thirty-six: for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? People seek possessions. Jesus told of a man that built bigger barns, but God said unto him, Thou fool, this night your soul will be required of thee. Then, those, then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? We seek pleasure, Proverbs twenty-one, seventeen: He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. Ecclesiastes 2, 1. Solomon, who knew all about pleasure, said, I said in mine heart, go to now. I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, This is also vanity. Solomon had tried it all, and it proved nothing. Or there's prosperity. Money can buy you a house, one author wrote, but not a home. It can buy you an education, but not wisdom. A bed, but not sleep. Money can buy you influence, but not respect. Medicine, but not health. A spouse, but not love. Quiet, but not tranquility. Remember years ago, remember the tennis star Boris Becker? Uh, Boris Becker had won Wimbledon a couple of times, and he was being interviewed, and he said, I've won Wimbledon twice before. I was the youngest player that did that. I was very wealthy. I had all the material possessions I needed, but I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. That comes from a man who had achieved great fame and wealth. This world can never satisfy the longings of the human soul. No matter what we think, if we think the next possession, the next relationship, the next whatever is going to bring us peace and satisfaction, it never happens. In Greek mythology, there was a king called Tantalus, King Tantalus, and he was being punished in the underworld by being chained in a lake. The waters reached right up to his chin, but whenever he reached, tried to bend down to satisfy his burning thirst, oh, he was... The waters receded. He couldn't ever get a drink. Over his head were branches laden with choice fruit, but they immediately withdrew whenever he reached up to satisfy his hunger. What a picture of trying to find satisfaction and relief in this world. A symbol for utter frustration. Actually, King Tantalus, his name is immortalized in the English word to tantalize. To tantalize. So to seeking to know God or to satisfy the human soul apart from Christ is utterly futile. It is futile. Satisfying in that we will have our thirst quenched. Notice in verse 35, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Again, we got to believe the promises of Jesus Christ. Here he says, I am, and of course, we have covered these passages before, and the I am is an echo of Exodus 3, where Moses asked God, who are you, who should I tell the people sent me? And God simply says, I am that I am. He uses his proper name, and it is the very character of God. And here Jesus is using that same terminology, and these Galilean Jews did not miss that point. In fact, the Jews of Jesus' day did not miss the point that he was claiming to be equal with the great I am, And he says here, I am the bread of life. It satisfies our deepest longings. This bread is eternal in nature, heavenly in origin. And fourth, life that is resurrection life. He provides us with resurrection life. Verses 37 through 40. Resurrection life is the will of the Father and is guaranteed by him. These are very important verses. If you get nothing else out of today, you need to understand the centrality of these verses In your salvation, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to very strongly contemplate and figure out what is after this life on this earth. In verse 37, well, in verse 36, let me back up. He said, but I have said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. The Jewish people are at this day and this time that heard Jesus are much like many people in our arena of influence unbelievers who say, you need to show me, and then maybe I'll believe, when actually that's backwards. Jesus asked people to believe, and then he will show them. We could go through probably almost everybody's testimony today, and there's some aspect where you stepped out in faith, you believe God for his word, and then he showed you his great blessings, and he changed your life. The world's got it backwards. They want to see and then believe, and God through Jesus Christ, calls us to believe, and then we'll see instead of seeing and believing. Life is resurrection life. So in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There's an aspect in verse 36 that he's talking about the total depravity of man. Nobody is born perfect except the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the only perfect life to live, and the rest of us have this thing called total depravity. We cannot even seek him out. We dare not seek him because we can't, our hearts are not set to him. And so Jesus tells us in verse 37 that we are secure. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are secure in him. He will not cast us out. So we dare not make Christ a liar. I appreciated what Brian said about having a struggle with assurance because that certainly was where I was at as a new Christian at age 28. I lacked assurance for a few years. And so I was always just worried about that and praying about that until uh, a friend of mine showed me back a page, chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, notice the verbs here, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life great verse on assurance of belief there's a difference between assurance and security of your salvation assurance is man to god do i really believe that god has assured me am i assured that he said what he said there in verse 24 chapter 5 is true that's an act of faith where I say, yes, I believe that's how I'm, I'm assured. But security comes the other direction. It is from God to man, and our security is based on what God has done and what God has said, and it is applied to us. That's why we can be relatively assured of someone else's salvation, but we can never be secure in somebody else's salvation. We can only be secure in our own salvation based upon what God has done and that what he has claimed. You know, there's a lot of things that... Uh, I can't guarantee. All of us, if we really look at our lives, there's much that we don't know and very little that we can guarantee. <clears throat> I don't know what will happen this afternoon. I don't know what ha- will happen tomorrow in Washington, D.C. I don't know what will happen to the economy. I don't even know what will happen uh, tomorrow or if even if I have a tomorrow. But I do know these things. I do know that every sinner who comes to Jesus Christ by faith and accepting him as their savior will be saved by grace through faith and will live forever in heaven someday. How do I know that for sure? Because God's word has declared it. I have the word of God on that matter. And resurrection life cannot be terminated by physical death. Remember, a death is simply a description of death is separation. Physical death is our soul and spirit separated from this physical body. Spiritual death, though, is the separation of the soul and spirit from God the Father, who is the one who is the possessor of uncreated life. And so resurrection life cannot be terminated. Look at verse 40 with me. Verse 40, he says, if I can find verse 40 here, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. These three verses are a great passage and one to know and to memorize, in fact, because we have security and assurance. Uh, We sometimes believe our assurance and our security depends upon what we do, when in reality it's based upon the very clear word of God and about what they're doing. In fact, uh, in our uh, Constitution and bylaws, which contain our statements of faith, in the elders' uh, statement of faith, in the affirmation of faith, uh, in the part about the Lord Jesus Christ, it talks about Jesus Christ, our intercessor and our advocate. Uh, It says, I'll quote our uh, affirmation of faith, we believe that he, speaking of Christ, became head over all things to the church, which is his body, and in his ministry he ceases not to intercede and advocate for the saved, Ephesians 1.22, Hebrews 7.25, 1 John 2. Uh, there is a good question about the fact that in Hebrews, Jesus Christ, one of his ministries, he is called the great high priest. Now, why do we need a priest in heaven? Because a priest intercedes for the people, right? And we're saved by grace. At the moment of salvation, your sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ paid it all on the cross. Uh, The question remains, what about sins after we're saved? Because we don't become perfect the moment we trust in Christ for Savior. It's because we need a great high priest who intercedes for us. Elsewhere, it says that Satan accuses us. He's known as the accuser before the throne of God. I don't know how that works. All I know is the Lord Jesus Christ is our intercessor and our advocate. Let me read you the footnotes. Christ's intercession assures the security of our salvation. By the way, when I struggled with my assurance and with my security as a believer in Christ, this is the fundamental argument that opened up my eyes to the truth of who and what Jesus Christ is and what he is doing right now, right now in heaven. He is interceding for us. He assures the security of our salvation. The believer could lose his salvation only, only... If Christ would be ineffective in his role as mediator, check out Romans 8.34, by the way. The intercession of Christ involves, number one, his presence before the Father, number two, his spoken word, and number three, his continual intercession. Those are present tense verbs. He continually intercedes for us. Okay, he is also our advocate. This is a different role. Christ advocacy restores us to fellowship when that fellowship is broken through sin. I've used the illustration many times. When I was in college, uh, my dad and I didn't get along. Our fellowship was broken because of my sin, okay? But you know what? The DNA was set. I was still his son. He was still my father. Nothing was going to change that. But the fellowship was broken, and I needed to repent and confess my sin and get back into fellowship with him. The same goes with what God is teaching us. And so Christ as our advocate, in fact, the word is parakletos, is the Greek. It maintains our salvation and that if we let down our guard or if we are guilty of some sin or the other, they will say that we lose our salvation. And, uh, but what the parakletos does, what Jesus as our advocate does, salvation is the gift of God as a forever work is what he is doing. The word indicates one who offers legal aid, the one that intercedes on behalf of someone else. It means advocate, counsel for the defense. It is a legal context word. So life is resurrection life, and we are secure and secure in it. Fifth and finally, uh, the life that we have that Christ is offering here is found in a person, of course, and it's in Jesus Christ alone. Look at verse 35 again. In verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will no longer hunger, but he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven, where he came from. In verse uh, 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down. And anyone who eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give to the life of the world is my flesh. And of course, the, the parallel is very obvious. These people were given physical bread. It fed them for one evening, and they were hungry again the next day, and they wanted more of that kind of bread, the physical bread. Yet Jesus is offering them spiritual bread to eat of him in that sense. If we were had time, we would go on and look at uh, what Jesus is talking about here. But Jesus is the bread which gives eternal life. He is in you, and Christ is the true life. In verse 56, in verse 52 through 58, there is a response of faith that results in eternal life. And so, who do we go to? The disciples had a problem later on in this passage. It tells us that uh, when he did this teaching, it was hard teaching. You know, there is hard teaching in the Bible. And in this passage, this is some of the hardest. And these people, uh, some of the says some of the disciples left and went away. Now, remember, a disciple is simply a follower. It doesn't mean these were believers. They were just following Jesus, and as was revealed, just to get what they could get out of him. And yet, then he turns to his disciples, his close disciples, and Simon Peter responds in verse 68 and 69, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There are days and times when, you know, life is hard. It's adverse many, many times, and some of you are going through that right now. And yet, uh, in my own experience, as I get up on the mountaintop sometimes and look around, what are the other options? And that's what Simon Peter says here. They just heard some very difficult teaching. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Who do we go to? He alone do we go to. I've told you about Alan Gardner before. He was one of the missionaries in another age. He experienced many physical difficulties and hardships as he served the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite his troubles, he wrote these words, While God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. (laughs) While God gives me strength, failure will not daunt me. In 1851, at the age of 57, he died of disease and starvation while serving on the Picton Island at the southern tip of South America. When his body was found, his diary lay nearby, and it bore the record of hunger, thirst, wounds, and loneliness. The last entry of his little book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly. It read, quote, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God, You know why Alan Gardner could write that? Because he had peace, because he had the bread of life. Gardner knew where the bread of life was found. From these verses, it's plain to see that Jesus Christ is offering us eternal life. He is the bread of life. He is the one who gives us uncreated life and hope for what man needs. And what a time, you know, we live in where we look around the world and we are exposed to so much bad news. We see that's what man needs, what mankind needs. So the question, though, before us, not worrying about the world right now, but worrying about each one of us, is what have you done with the bread of life, with Jesus Christ? Have you believed him for everlasting life? Are you secure in his salvation this morning? Can you really claim John 5, 24? Can you claim the verses in chapter 6, verses 37 through 40? If something were to happen to you and you died today, where would you spend eternity? That is the fundamental question. What about tomorrow? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and uh, I just ask that you would disturb each one of us, really, Lord, when we are too well-pleased with ourselves, uh, when we are confident that our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little, when we arrive safely, because we have sailed too close to the shore disturb each one of us, Lord, when the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our hunger for the bread of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity, and in our efforts to build the new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new earth to dim. And finally, Lord, we ask that you disturb us to dare more boldly to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where Losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Lord, for each one here, for those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, believed in him for eternal life, grow us today. Stretch, (coughs) Stretch our faith that we would be used of you for those, Lord, who have not made that decision, who uh, just are going through life without a future and a hope, I pray that you'd open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, and they would recognize that you are the bread of life, that uncreated life can be theirs by believing in you, and that they can have peace and assurance and security because your word declares it so. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.